you know, there's, there's a certain power in simply recognizing the presence of God. There's a certain power when we come together as a church and say, God, we recognize that your presence is actually amongst us. I want to do that together as a church. Would you join with me in prayer as we acknowledge that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that Jesus, our Savior, is quite literally here in this place with us. God, I want to thank you that your presence is here, that your Holy Spirit is here, that the Son, the risen Son, Jesus, is here among us, Lord. And God, I even ask that in this moment, each person gathered would come to, I guess, a realization of your presence within them, Lord God. Jesus, I thank you that you are here and that you are for us. And Lord God, I pray that that for the rest of the time we have left with one another, that we would know your awesome presence here. And everybody said, Amen. Praise God. Can we praise God together before we sit down? Man, I love Jesus. Why don't you take a seat? What a, what a great opportunity to come together and praise and praise our great God. You know, in a little while, we're, well, just a few moments, really, we're going to get into God's Word together. But it's something I just wanted to do really quickly before we do that. You, you would have seen on the screens earlier that we're heading into Blocktober. We've got all kinds of things happening at Meroa. And, and I just really wanted to take a moment just to honor Michelle Gomans, our, our Meroa camper. She has no idea I was going to. Can we just, and I'll tell you why in a moment. You can applaud now. I know just the mention of her name in sites applause. But, but can I tell you that Michelle has got a heart for that community and for that campus. And, and behind closed doors, she's just doing an incredible job working towards that. So can I just encourage you, if, if coming out of Launchpad, you're like, yeah, Marawa is where God's calling me to make a difference as part of True North Church for the sake of the gospel. Can I just encourage you, get around Michelle Gomez. She's got a heart for that place. And, and I'm just so excited to see what God's going to do that. And I just saw, saw the block again and I'm just so encouraged and, and and looking forward to the next few months of your life, as you are as well, I'm sure, with all the fun and, fun and excitement going on. It's an awesome time in the, in the life of our church here at True North. You know, I, I spoke a few moments ago about the power of recognizing God's presence, the power of recognizing who Jesus is. And, and this morning, I want to lean into that a little bit further and recognize who Jesus is just a little bit more as our Messiah, the power of the gospel, and the power of the gospel specifically in its ability to break the power of shame. That the gospel in its entirety is actually about breaking shame in my life. Now, shame is the the, the reality that when I recognize there's something broken in me, there's something that falls short in me, there's something that's less than it should be. When I recognize that, what can come alongside that is a fear that because of that brokenness, others are going to think less of me. God might think less of me. Jesus even is going to think less of me because of the brokenness that I perceive or identify within myself. Can I tell you? that the gospel of Jesus Christ exists to break the fear and the reality that my mistake separates me from God. That is the gospel in its entirety. And we're going to look together today about how Jesus breaks the power of shame. So we're going to get into our Bibles. Who loves your Bible? Who's got a Bible? 
Come on. That, that was a, a mild response. At I see some Bibles coming up. We're, we're going to get into God's Word. I love God's Word. And, and this is an incredible story. You know, so often in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, you, you see a story that's just a few verses long that captures the entirety of God's Word, that captures the entirety of who Jesus is. And I believe this is one of those passages in John chapter 8. And starting in verse 1, it just kind of gives us some details about what's going on in the life of Jesus at this point. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, in verse 2, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. So there's a crowd that's formed. Jesus has showed up. He's a respected teacher. He's, he's moving in miraculous ways. When he shows up at the temple, people gather to see him, to hear him. A crowd has gathered all around him. And he sat down in the posture of a teacher, the rabbi, and he began to teach them. Then in verse 3, the moment changes drastically. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act. She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, here's, here's how our story begins. Now, now I want to take away some of the stigma of the, the court in the act of, of adultery. I know that's a, that's, a strong, that's a strong picture. But to actually say being caught in the act of a mistake, being caught in the act of brokenness or falling short of what God would call us to. And, and this woman, all she's done, she's made a mistake that is less than what God has called her to do. Now, that's a picture of my life. It might be a picture of your life as well, that in certain spaces, we've fallen short of who God invites us to be. In certain spaces, there's mistakes that we've made in the picture of our lives. Can, can anyone say that's true of your life as well? Because this, this is true of my life. This is a big thing for me. There's parts of my life that are less than what I'd like them to be. Now, kind of the way as human beings we like to handle our brokenness, uh, our things that are a little bit messy, we, we kind of like to do the opposite of what we see in the start of this story, don't we? we? With no choice of our own, it's made public, it's in front of everyone. Our natural position is to think of what's broken in us, think of what's broken in me, and hide it away. You know, modern architecture's kind of uh, tapped into this kind of base uh, drive for us as human beings. And with the return, it's really trending now, of the idea of the scullery. Anyone know what a scullery is? If you do, I'm impressed. I learned just this week. So the idea of the scullery is that in, in modern architecture, we have these beautiful open living areas with a kitchen acting as this central point that, that's just designed to look fresh, pristine, and brings this whole living area together. Now, there's a problem with the kitchen being the central point of a nice living area, isn't there? Because the kitchen is like every day getting dirty. There's dishes piling up, there's rubbish, there's all kinds of things. There's a hundred ways the kitchen gets messy every day, yet it's designed to be this focal point of, I guess, like style and beauty in the living area. Now, enter the scullery. The scullery is a secondary, smaller, concealed kitchen where you can do all the dirty work. You can let dishes pile up there. You can have your bin full. You can have extra garbage bags tied up next to the bin. You can have food scraps everywhere, and you can shut the door, and no one will ever see it. 
Even better, you don't have to worry about it. You don't see it every day. You're like, yeah, my kitchen looks awesome because my scullery's a mess. Is anyone else kind of like, yeah, maybe I need to get a scullery at my place? Because we're kind of like, we want to have a clean kitchen, but having a clean kitchen takes a little bit of work. So someone, I know, let's create a hidden kitchen that can stay messy, and that way we can have a clean kitchen without doing the work. That's kind of the thought here. It's like, anyone else like, yeah, okay, we're getting a scullery. Next house, that's the first question. Look, real estate guy, I need a scullery. Make it happen. And you may or may not find one in your price range. But we'll, uh, we'll see how we go. But, but here's the, the kind of thought that, that this so much captures the way we like to operate with the things that are the least in us, isn't it? That we like to hide it away, that, that we like not to think about it, not to deal with it, close the door on it, and certainly prevent anyone else from seeing what is least in us. In me. It's natural, right? Now, the girl in our story, she doesn't have this option at all. She's caught in the act. Her guilt is on display, and she's in a position of shame where she cannot hide anything away, and she's brought to the feet of Jesus. She doesn't have a choice, but we, we do have a choice. And as a, as a starting point, as I think about what it means to allow the gospel, which exists to break shame in my life, to allow the gospel to do that, I actually have to open the door to that hidden room and say, Jesus, this is the reality. Now, we don't like to do that because personally, we're a little bit sh- ashamed of what's in that back room. We wonder what God might think of that, what it would look like to sit down in prayer and say, Jesus, this is the reality of certain parts of my life. I want to open that door to you and bring it into the light. We're not forced to do it, but can I tell you, if you want to know the freedom that's in Jesus, this is the first step. Let's go a little bit further in the passage. As we read, we, we discover there's a little bit more going on and a little bit more complexity. And in verse 5, it says this. As the Pharisees have brought her to Jesus, she's been caught in the act, and then they say this. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Straight away, they go to punishment. They say, here is her guilt. Here is the punishment. And I love this. They say, now, Jesus, what do you say about that? What do you say about that, Jesus? Now, they were actually using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, we don't get it right away, but, but Jesus, he finds himself in a position of weight in this moment. That, that obviously, this girl, she's in a position of weight. She's carrying the weight of her mistake, the fear of judgment and, and shame in this public space. She's carrying a big weight. But we learn that Jesus is carrying a big weight as well. Because what the Pharisees were doing, they were trying to get him to say, no, she shouldn't be punished in this way. And if Jesus' response was to say, no, she shouldn't be punished, then he'd find himself alienated from the Jews. But here was the tricky thing. If he said, yes, she should be punished in this way, the Roman law, which operated above Jewish law, actually prevented them from carrying out capital punishment. 
So if Jesus was to say, yes, she should be stoned, then he'd be in trouble under the Roman governance. So he finds himself in this position where the Pharisees, quite obviously, as they were always trying to do, was frame a question to which there was no good answer. So whatever Jesus said, he was going to land himself in a position of trouble. Jesus is carrying a weight here. And I love this as we get into this narrative, that we see this lady come carrying the weight of her brokenness. And the very first thing that Jesus does as she enters into the scene is he starts carrying that weight as well. Can I tell you, that is the gospel. That when we think of those things that are closed behind the door and the weight that we carry, Jesus carries that weight as well. Jesus carries the weight of everything that is least in me, and he does it with joy. He does it with purpose. He does it with intention. He carries that weight. Now, I love thinking again just about the flow of this story and asking the question, okay, where does Jesus actually fit in this moment? Where does Jesus fit in this story? Over here, we have, we have the girl in her guilt, the mistake that she's made in her brokenness. We have her in that place of just falling short. And then on the other side, we have the voice of accusation from the Pharisees trying to rile up all the people, the voice of accusation, the voice of judgment, saying she needs to be punished because of that brokenness we all see in her. There needs to be a consequence. There needs to be judgment because of all of that that we can see in her. And where do we see Jesus? Right in the middle, between the mistake and between the judgment. That's where Jesus is positioned in this story. Can I tell you that that is true of our lives as well? That the place that Jesus takes up in me is between my sin and between my condemnation. That's where he lives. That's where he hangs out. That's what he went to the cross to do, is to stand between my shortcomings and my judgment. And he stands there, strong, straight, with purpose and with intention. Can someone say amen to that? That is Jesus. So this is the place we find him in. And how does he respond? Some of you, you've heard this story before and you'll be familiar with this picture. In the second part of verse 6, it says this. But Jesus bent down. And started to ride on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. So Jesus finds himself in between the guilt and in between the punishment. There's a voice of accusation crying out against the girl. And in that moment, Jesus stoops down. And he just starts to write on the ground. Other translations will say that he stooped down as if not to hear them. As if not to even hear that voice of accusation. And as they continue questioning him, questioning him, as they continue to, to yell and, and get angry and, and pointing down and say, Jesus, as the teacher, as the judge, you need to pass on condemnation. And Jesus just sits and draws on the ground. 
until finally he straightens up like Superman and says, let any one of you who's without sin, who's never made a mistake, be the first to pick up a stone and throw it at her. You know, Jesus is building on something when he makes this statement. In Jewish law, with capital offenses like this, it was, it was the reality that if someone was going to be stoned, that an eyewitness would be the first to throw the stone, to add weight to their testimony. And Jesus shifts that idea, and he said, I don't care about what you see clear as day in her. That's not your basis for judgment. If you're without sin yourself, be my guest, take up a stone. If you're without sin yourself, feel free to pick up that stone. And then Jesus stoops down again and keeps riding on the sand. Now, here's what I love about this moment. You know, we can, we can look at this picture, and for those of you that have a more inquisitive mind, you might think, gee, I wonder what Jesus was writing in the sand. Has anyone thought that when you've read this passage? Yeah, almost everyone. <laughs> We've all got quite inquisitive minds here at True North. Mm. Anyway, and, and we can think about that, but the reality is, the, the first thing you can hear incredibly imaginative ideas of what Jesus may have been writing, but the reality is we just don't know. And here's why I don't think it matters. Because what I think Jesus was really communicating by stooping down and writing in the sand was that he had no interest at all in judgment and punishment. It was like he couldn't even hear it. It was so fundamentally against who he was as our saviour that he couldn't even hear judgment. He couldn't even register because at his core, he exists for salvation, for redemption, for renewal. So when Jesus hears a voice of accusation, it doesn't even register in his ears. Now, there's two things for us in this. Sometimes we carry our own shame. We recognize something in me that's not good, and we, we feel badly about it. We think, if anyone knew this, I don't want to take this to God. You know what? Jesus can't even register judgment on my behalf. So he went to the cross to redeem me. He is completely disinterested in any notion that my sin separates me from him. Completely disinterested. We need to know that for ourselves and live in the reality that Jesus has broken the power of shame in my life. But there's something here as well for us, that that we as the people of God, we have the opportunity to break the power of shame over others. We actually have the opportunity to help people to see themselves as Jesus sees them. So that when you encounter a person and you can, as everyone there, could see the brokenness, could see the mistake, could see the guilt, that we now look at that as Jesus looks at that with a complete disinterest in any kind of judgment. And you know what happens when people are surrounded by people that see them like Jesus sees them? Their lives are transformed and the power of shame is broken. So that when, when maybe someone comes to you and, and maybe they start to gossip, 
you've just got a complete disinterest. It's a stooping down moment where no matter what's being said about another person and their shortcomings, it's like you can't even hear it because you're taking on the attitude of Christ towards that person. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, you know what, if there's no brokenness in you, be my guest, cast the first stone. But of course, as we go further in the scripture, in verse 9 at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. You know, just as I was reading this this week, uh, I just got a great encouragement here that, that it was the older ones that led the way in this. Can, can I say if you're here to my older brothers and sisters here this morning, that you actually have a mandate that I see in Scripture to show me how to model Christ. Is, is my friend Glenn Vorza here? I see Glenn Vorza. Now, I, I look at Glenn and I say, you know what, Glenn, and, and I'm sorry I didn't tell her I was going to do this. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, I look at Glenn and I see the heart that she has for Jesus. I see the heart that she has for others finding the love of Jesus. And I see a person that is modeling what Jesus is talking about. Can I tell you, if you're here in this place and your hair's starting to go gray, it's okay, mine is slowly as well. I was devastated. I found some gray in the corner of my beard. But anyway, if you're here and you're growing older in years you actually have an opportunity to model Christhood to your younger brothers and sisters, to your sons and daughters in the faith. And can I say thank you to Glenn for doing that and others in our church. Yeah, can we applaud that? Because when I see this, I see a picture, and just as much as Glenn has a responsibility to do that, I have a responsibility to do that. That younger people would look in my life and say, look, there's someone that's walking away from judgment. There's someone that's saying, I recognize what Christ has called me to be. Anyway, the older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I love this picture. It's a gathered crowd. It's at the temple. Jesus has made this statement. Everyone leaves. Every single person leaves. Until we get to the girl and to Jesus. And Jesus straightened up again. I love it. In this passage, whenever you see Jesus straightening up, he's about to do something awesome. And he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I love imagining Jesus' facial expressions in some of these moments. And I just, I don't know about you, but I just imagine a beaming smile across his face. Remember, he's in the position where he's been made the judge of her circumstance. And he stands up and he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Could I get the, the team to come back and join us? You know, I love how this story, this story concludes. And we see it in the flow of this amazing account between Jesus and this woman, that he stands in the gap between guilt and punishment. And quite literally, in that space of shame, Jesus stands on top of it and transforms shame into acceptance. He breaks the power of judgment. He breaks the power of condemnation 
And he says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Borrowed from some other scripture there. But that's what Jesus is communicating about himself. You know, the expressed reason that the Gospel of John is even written is to reveal without any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. That we have fullness of life in him. Freedom from shame. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the cost of our mistakes in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus stands in that space. But let's remember the very last words he says to her. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus recognizes that there's a mistake. Jesus recognizes that in this space she's fallen short. Now this is the whole reason why I sometimes struggle in my quiet times when I know I've done something wrong. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. And you go into the presence of God and you think, oh, that's right, I need to deal with this. And you take a step back. Has anyone done that before? We probably do it at church all the time. Because we know that Jesus invites us to be more. But here's what I love about this idea of salvation. And maybe you're new to church this morning and maybe even this is the first kind of time you've heard someone talk about Jesus for this long. Can I, can I explain something to you? Because something we can do when we look at this story is to think what Jesus is doing, and I apologize, I've been going pretty hard at McDonald's lately, the, the Monopoly deal. Anyone loving that? I've got like nine free small Sundays in my center console if anyone wants to, you know, take your connect group out for Sundays. I've got you covered. But, but anyway, I, I, look at this, I look at this passage and sometimes you can think about it, that what Jesus is doing, remember, he is the judge in this situation. Sometimes we can look at the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation, and think that it is God giving us a get out of jail free card. So the woman in this moment, in some ways, literally that's what happened. The reality for her could have been that she was stoned in that moment. But Jesus stands in between her mistake and her punishment. And you can think, wow, Jesus just saved her. He saved her life, which is true. But it's actually more than that. Salvation isn't God giving us a get-out-of-jail-free guard. Salvation is actually God giving us the deeds to Park Lane and Mayfair and saying, use it for my glory. That is what Jesus does to stand in that gap. You know, Pastor Dean taught me something recently. When it comes to, I guess, a heart to live our lives modeled after Christ. That that sometimes the motivation can simply be that because I'm following Jesus, because uh, I'm a Christian, because uh, I'm living out my life of faith, that just because of that fact within itself, I should strive for, for, I guess, holiness in my life. For character that's modeled after Christ. For integrity modeled after the person of who Jesus is. And all of those things are so good and so aspirational. But in fact, for me, the bigger reason that I want to do those things is because God actually calls me to purpose in this world. And if I'm to show people who Jesus is, I need to take seriously who Christ is in me. For me, that's the motivator. Not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but say, Phil, I want to put all of these things on your life, the power of the gospel, the power of salvation, because I've called you to make a difference for the gospel. 
It's true of your life as well. That salvation is so much more than just freedom from, from guilt, although fundamentally that's what it's all about. It's about modeling who Christ is. You know, we're going to sing that, that awesome new song that we sung this morning. And, and I want to give you a special invitation this morning for the, for the time that we have left. If, if you're here today and you feel like, honestly, you're battling with this idea of shame, that you think about that picture of the kitchen and you know there's a closed room in your soul and you're not letting anyone get at it, not Jesus, not anyone, I want to give you an invitation today just to open that door. And I actually want to invite you as we're singing this song to come to the front. And I'd love to pray with you. And here's going to be my attitude. I don't actually want to know what you've done. I don't want to know what your mistake is. The attitude in my heart is going to be like Jesus riding on the sand. I'm not interested in what it is that you feel ashamed about. I'm interested in you knowing the grace and love of Jesus. And some of our other pastors are going to be here as well. And in this moment, if you want to know the reality that Jesus stands in the place of shame with loving acceptance, we just want to pray that over you this morning in a very specific way to know the awesome love of our God. Can we stand together? We're going to sing that song. And if that's you this morning... And you just want someone to pray the grace of Jesus into your life. We'd love to do that. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you for this moment in your presence. And God, I pray that as we sing this song, we declare these words that are true about who you are. Lord, I pray that the power of shame would be broken here this morning. I pray that the power of sin would be broken. I pray that the power of judgment would be broken. And Jesus, I pray that only your grace, that only your acceptance, that only your invitation to a life of purpose would remain. Jesus, we thank you that you are our Redeemer. And God, we lift your name up. If that's you, come down and we'd love to pray.